0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: I mean, end of the day, you know, a lot of people would say, well, as long as you're earning earning a paycheck, who cares? But, you know, I really want it. I've always been very independent. I hate people doing things. I hate it when people do things for me. I always want to do everything myself. And I wanted to be able to say, to say whether I was a success or not a success, you know, at least it was what I had earned. You know, it wasn't anything that had come to me um, on someone else's coattails.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc.
2: JD, I was really thinking hard last night about pedestal sinks, and I was like, man, i gotta, I got to ask you about that on the podcast. Any, Any pedestal issues you're having?
3: Well, I mentioned pedestals to you, but it wasn't a sink. It was, um, yeah, we're basically at the tail end of this renovation on our house. The house is like 6,000 some square feet on the inside and the painters just left. And like that was the last step of everything over two years of, of reno. Um, and I ordered just to, to surprise my wife for the laundry room, those pedestals that you can put underneath your washer and dryer. Um, They kind of raise them up. I think it's like 18 inches or something. They've got drawers in them so you can store some stuff because she's kind of (laughs) short, so she can't reach the cabinets above the washer and dryer, so I figured it would be cool to get those for her. So these guys from Home Depot showed up to deliver them, and they put them together in the laundry room, and um, they're supposed to have these rubber feet on the bottom, and they didn't put those rubber feet. Instead, they left the screws that the rubber feet are supposed to attach to, and then they pushed them back across my laundry room floor to get them in place, and they left these giant gouge marks going from our, our hallway all the way into the laundry room. Um, so long story short, there's about $8,000 worth of flooring that has oh. to be replaced <laughs> because because they did this. Um, and they know they did it. Um, you, know, like the, the, you know, they, they copped to it. They, they actually cut me a check for it. Um, but it's it's going to be a little bit of a headache because we've got built-in cabinets in that room and there's granite countertops that are in there. Like, all of that stuff has to come out um, in order for them to rip up the floors and fix it. And like, these these aren't things that you can just patch. Like, you have to, to do it. And like, the, the flooring is, is pretty pricey. So like, we, we're not going to live with scratch marks in this, you know brand new expensive floor um so yeah that happened like literally like you know like if we were done <laughs> you know like with this, this whole renovation um other than the garage stuff but yeah um
4: this is the second time in a month I'm gonna tell you you should have gone to Lowe's
3: yeah that <laughs> I'm heading there next time for sure <laughs> although around here it's probably the same delivery company for both probably. of them I don't know that it matters uh, did either of you guys catch Dune yet
4: no no I want to see it but I haven't seen it yet
3: all right, I'm not going to go into the story at all, um, but I, I I was reading about the process, um, you know. So anybody who's read Dune, like I haven't read it since I was a kid, but I, I remember how you know it was a freaking doorstop. So I went back and looked, and it's yeah. just a little shy of 900 pages. Um, so this this Dune that's on HBO and out in the theaters right now, it, it basically covers the first 500 pages of the book. Um, now the the director um, and guy the guy's name is escaping me, but he's done he did Fifth Element and a bunch of other things. A really really talented guy. Um, he he went and basically put. Part one on the titles of, of this movie, even though they haven't greenlit a part two you know so like he went balls to the wall on this and just figured I'm gonna just do this my way and, and hopefully it's gonna work out but you know so they the first movie covers up through page 500 it says part one on it and the story just sort of ends you know like midstream and he just kind of you know went back on his heels and said alright it's your court studio do you want to wow. make the next one or not um, which you know I could really you know obviously could go in one of two ways and could have really gotten ugly um, I, I just saw the announcement they just green light a uh, greenlit yeah. a second film so th- it is happening uh, but, but man that takes some balls to to do something like that.
4: Yeah. It goes to prove something too. like when they announced that movie, like I've been saying forever, I I wish they would have made a TV show. Like to me, that felt like that world is so rich. It felt like that it would have done so well as the thing to replace game of Thrones on HBO. Like that could have been the next epic sci-fi fantasy thing they did. And then because the movies before, I mean, um, were, Whatever. I mean, you know, people had different opinions about the original movie, but, um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like it would have been great for a TV show. And you, what you're saying, the fact that it just kind of ends, kind of, I feel like that kind of proves that a little bit even more.
3: Well, I think they did this as a TV show at one point, too, right? There's the, the there was a
4: miniseries on, okay. like in the, in the 90s or like the late 90s or something, but they haven't done just like a serialized TV show where they could have done like, you know, seven seasons or something like that. And that world is so big, especially with all the stuff that his son and Kevin J. Anderson have been doing. I mean, they could have, it would have been an awesome show, but I'm sure the movie's good. I just haven't, I haven't had, have, I've been traveling, so yeah, I haven't well, had a chance to watch it yet. I,
3: honestly, like visually, it's, it's just, it's stunning. You know, it, like the scenes are incredible. The, the music is is you know, perfect. Like every, everything about it from that standpoint is, is great. Um, I don't want to weigh in on the story though because I don't want to screw it up for the, the people that haven't seen it yet, but definitely check it out if, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, speaking of movies I, I picked up a book the other day screenwriting for dummies <laughs> so I I am actually giving this a try and I, I'm not allowed to say which book it is I'm, I'm writing the screenplay for um, I'm basically working hand in hand with somebody who's you know pretty well known in that that industry but he, he wanted me to take a first stab at it which is, is kind of cool because um, it, it's a daunting thing you know like if you think about it from an author's standpoint you write a book you know you go back through you trim all the fat you kind of get it as lean as you, you think it can really get um, and you know that's where your, your book ends up and for this particular book' it's Around 400 or so pages, 120,000 words, I guess. Um, so, right now, I'm going through that book and I'm, I'm typing it up in the screenwriting software. And I'm, you know, a normal scre- screenplay is about 130 pages. It's typically one minute per page, is the, the general rule of thumb there. Um, I'm at page 59, and my screenplay is at, at page 43. Um, <laughs> so, I'm doing it all wrong. Um, you know, my, my screenplay is going to end up being around 350 pages at the, the rate that I'm going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but my, my general thinking here is I'm just going to go through the book, I'm going to get it all down on paper, and then I'm going to start figuring out what scenes I can juggle, you know, what I can take out, what I can shorten, you know, and cause I, I found some cool software. Um, and I, I was going to mention this, because I know there's a lot of people that have actually tried screenwriting before, there's a ton of us, you know, prospects out there, um, I, I loaded final draft and, and straight off the bat, I was just kind of overwhelmed, um, it gave me a Photoshop vibe where, you know, it's got tons of bells and whistles and all these features. And I'm like, I don't really need that, you know, like, I just need something that's going to give me, you know, some, some form. You know, like I don't need all these other things. I'm sure it's useful. I'm sure it's a great tool, Uh, but I reached out to my film manager and he he, uh, mentioned something called Highland 2, um, which I've never heard of before. Uh, But it's really cool. It's free. Um, There was no charge for it. Um, I got it off the the App Store. I don't know if it's for you can get it for PC or not. Uh, But you literally just start typing. Um, so like it knows if you're typing dialogue and if it does, it automatically formats it for dialogue. If you throw in you know like if you start typing the word interior, it automatically formats that properly. Um, so you just kind of have to know the you know, the few buzzwords that are important for for a screenplay. So I'm very happy with that. I've got no idea where this is gonna go, but but I'm giving it a shot.
2: It's definitely a, a different a, a different kind of writing uh, <laughs> yeah i remember when you made me do that uh <laughs> and I, I was in <laughs> the same boat i had like i think i ended up with a, a 240 page <laughs> script and i'm like all right well that's just a starting point you know that's just sort of like dumping the story into the new format and then you're gonna have to go back and just cut things out
3: Yeah. And, you know, I'm basically I'm doing the reverse of that at this point. So I'm I'm focusing really heavy on the dialogue um, because I'm I'm pretty good when it comes to dialogue and it flows really well. And I'm I'm very happy with the pacing that's in the actual book and the the cuts back and forth between chapters are very similar in my mind to the cuts that would be in the the scenes for the movie. Um, So I'm not moving too far away from that. So I get all giddy when I run into a, you know, like two or three paragraphs that don't have dialogue (laughs) and I can sum them up in like two or three, you know, Couple quick words, um, and then get back to a block of dialogue again. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm curious where this is going to end up. And one of the cool things about the software um, is, you know, I mentioned the one page equals one minute. This actually tells you what the reading time is, um, and it, and it's different. Um, so like right now, even at that, you know, I'm at 50 or 60 pages in the screenplay. Like my actual reading time is 38 minutes. So it's like it's telling me roughly what the the length of the movie is. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, I just wanted to plug one other piece of software out there. Um, somebody sent me an email. I had mentioned the, the software that I have on my Apple Watch for recording. Um, it's, it's literally called Just Press Record. Um, so if anybody wants to be able to do that, just go to the, the Apple store and download it. I don't think there was a charge for it, but it's basically just a red button on my Apple watch. I press it and it automatically drops the text onto my Mac um, anytime I do that, um, which, which is very useful. Um, and I, I was looking at another piece of software right before we got on, which I think you know you, you guys have both heard of at this point, Atticus, uh, Dave Chesson's new new product. Yeah. Have Either of you tried it yet?
2: I have not tried it yet. I was he. he wrote an extensive blog post, sort of uh, detailing some of the features and some of the comparisons with Vellum, and uh, it looks really interesting. And I, and I think what's exciting about it for me is that, and, and we love the guys. We love Brad and Brad at Vellum. So this is this is not a not a, a swipe at Vellum by any means. But they're they're been pretty clear saying that they're not developing anything outside of the iOS um, as far as their as far as Vellum goes. So I think if you know if you're not going to use a workaround to to use vellum and you have other devices i think atticus is shaping up to be a, a pretty impressive tool
3: so I've, I've never used vellum before i'm, I'm familiar with it but is, is that strictly for formatting or can you actually write a book in vellum
4: you can i mean you i don't think you would want to <laughs> but i mean you definitely can you could sit there and write your book in vellum if you want um but it's i it's the last thing i do in the process like so i write my book in scrivener I sit, I spit out to a Word file, which you have to have for Vellum, but that's also what my editor uses. So I get it out to a Word file to get to my editor. I go through all her revisions, and then once I've got a clean document and I'm ready, I take it right into Vellum. I already have a template of what I for what it needs to look like, and I just have to change a few things. It takes me five minutes to format a book because I because I already have it set up with like especially in my Dead South series. Uh, once I did book one, I just opened that one, duplicate it, and then I just changed the title and a couple other little like copyright page or whatever, a couple little things and I'm done.
3: Okay. So I, I normally don't do those steps. I've got somebody who handles all my formatting, So, I, but I, I, I get it. That's probably really useful. Whatever they
4: charge you, I'll do it for $10 less because <laughs> I can probably do it in about 10 minutes.
3: <laughs> you, you probably can. I know I'm, I'm probably overpaying for it. It's just, it's one of those things I just never wanted to- Is it
4: Home take... Depot? Do you have Home Depot formatting your book? <laughs> No, I, I go to Lowe's for-, for oh, okay format. good. Good. Yeah. At least you go to they, Lowe's. They, good. They okay. handle
3: all that. Um, well, one of the nice things about Atticus that I noticed, um, I, I listened to, to Dave talking about this on another podcast. It, it sounds like, you can kind of do everything within this program. So you can write yeah, the the book so. in there. You can format it within there. Um, you can collaborate with other people, um, which which is nice. Um, and even the editing process, you know, you're, you're basically sending the editor a link to your your book online so they're working within that same file too so you know normally I can keep it pretty clean you know all the different drafts and all that kind of stuff on my own computer but once I send it off to the editors and start going to all these other people you know that's where I end up with you know the problem that he had mentioned you know where you've got final draft you know version 4 Five, six, you know, like I, I, I date them because that makes it a little bit easier for me to tell them apart. But I think we all run into that problem. So it sounds like if, if this works, and you know, in a perfect world, it, it will. It, it solves all of these these little headaches, and I, I love that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try it. I think with the next book, just to see how it goes.
2: Yeah, I think that's the that's the real value proposition. Is he's talking about? I mean, it's not quite there yet. It's just been introduced, but you know, he he's calling it sort of the all-in-one writing tool. You know, like you you can start drafting there, and then. Go through the entire process and have a have a formatted book all within one piece of software so I think it's a it's an ambitious play and uh, and knowing Dave uh, it's gonna be high quality so I'm gonna be following
4: it see what happens yeah Dave's a smart dude and he's doing some really cool stuff and I've got my eye on it you know I mean I'm pretty content with Scrivener and I bought the unlimited version of vellum because I'm a Mac user so um, you know it's kind of been I don't know I, I guess there's some sunk cost in that but you know if a better tool came around I would definitely use it but I'm pretty content with that but I'm interested to see how what he builds out and and, and where Atticus goes because it could be really interesting
3: well I'm, I'm all for competition and it kind of feels like Dave just volleyed the ball over into Scribner's, you know side of the field and let, let, let's see what happens next but very very cool stuff
2: excellent well let's take care of a little bit of business and we'll get to our guest for the week We want to give a warm shout-out to our wonderful friends up north there at Kobo Writing Life. If you are publishing a book wide or considering it, you got to go there. Uh, We all use Kobo Writing Life. They have... uh, Uh, great monthly promotions. You get set prices in all territories all throughout the world. And the best part about Kobo Writing Life is you don't have to be exclusive to them. So you can sell your books in other places. If you want to know more or sign up for your free Kobo Writing Life account, go to kobowritinglife.com also want to welcome brand new patron Michelle G. Michelle, thank you for becoming a patron of the uh, <laughs> the Crew Author Podcast. Thank you for being a patron of the Writers Inc. Podcast. We've only been doing this for two years. Uh, if you want to become a patron of the show and ask us questions on our monthly Q&A episode, go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And that takes us to our guest. Who do we have on the show today, J.D.?
3: Well, here at writers Inc we're all about family so we've had the the Kellermans on we've had John and Jesse we had Christopher Rice on not too long ago so this week we've got Andrew Child on um, Lee Child's brother taking over the Jack Reacher series um, which is you know got to be a a dream come true to to any author and probably also the worst nightmare in the world because you've got fans out there that are very used to Lee's particular style so I'm really interested in hearing this particularly I've worked on this type of thing before you know as as a ghostwriter but he's right out there in front you know they're, they're not hiding from from anybody and and everything is on his shoulders so this is this is going to be very cool uh so here he is andrew child
2: uh so i i feel compelled to ask you the first question i asked your brother when i interviewed him which is how does jack reacher feel about andrew grant
1: <laughs> well you know that's a very good question um i think i think jack reacher and i would be would be good friends i think that um um, you know, one of the big things about um, Jack, obviously, is is the fact that he feels always driven to do the right thing. And um, even if that leads to some bad circumstances, and, um, you know, while it wouldn't quite be on the same scale as Jack, or in the, you know, quite doesn't wouldn't involve quite as many trips to the emergency room. But, um, you know, there were times throughout my career before I started writing, where um, I managed to get myself in Quite a lot of trouble doing um, doing things that I thought were the right thing, which uh, you know perhaps weren't the sensible things. So you know, I think we would I think we would be pretty much kindred spirits. You know, even though he's a little bit bigger and heavier than me.
2: <laughs> Great answer, because that's a tough one to to think about.
1: <laughs> it is. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, we're going to get uh, certainly get into into Reacher a little bit more. Uh, before that, though, um, I wonder if maybe if you could take us back to. 2008, uh, you have your first book published as Andrew Grant called Even. You're coming out of the corporate world. What was that transition like?
1: Um, It was... It was quite. It was. It was mixed, honestly, because um, I decided that. I mean, I never really fit in the corporate world very well. Um, I kind of wound up in it by accident because um, I've I'd been. I'd, when I left university, I set with some friends. We set up um, a small theatre company, which we ran for a couple of years, and theatre really was my was my first love and what I wanted to continue doing. But after two years of running an independent theatre company, where we were totally. Um, sort of you know we we it wasn't exactly irresponsible but we we were self-serving we we had specific things we wanted to do we only wanted to produce our own material for example you know we didn't want to do you know the normal theater thing of, of interspersing new plays with, with with established ones to earn money so as a result you know we're a new company no one's heard of us we're doing shows that no one's heard of of written by people that no one's heard of so end of the two years you know we were, we were completely broke so i really just needed a job and so you know this was back in the day where there was no internet to speak of so if you wanted a job you had to buy a newspaper and see what what was available so i bought the sunday times one week in england and looked to see what which job had the highest starting salary That's what I applied for, and by some miracle, managed to get it. And then, you know you know how it is. I thought I would stay for a couple of years, but then you get sucked into that whole corporate thing. You know, you're trying to get your next promotion. You've got a mortgage to pay, all of that kind of stuff. So um, I wound up staying there for 15 years. And towards the end, I was desperate to get out. I, I decided I'd made the decision I wanted to become a writer. And so I thought what might be sensible would be to kind of write my first book on the sly while I was still getting paid by the company. And that way, you know, when it was ready, if someone would buy it, then I could quit and I wouldn't have any kind of, you know, time where I was worried about starving. But that just didn't work. I, w- I I couldn't keep the momentum going. You know, I would I would make some good progress one week. Then the next week I'd be away in hotels and stuff. I wouldn't get anything done. And then when I got home, I couldn't remember why the characters were doing what they were doing or, you know, so it just wasn't, wasn't working for me. So in the end, I took the decision you just got to go cold turkey, no safety net, leave, you know, quit, and just see what happens. So I quit um, at the end of June 2006, and I did actually manage to get a severance package with enough money I figured to last for about a year. So I figured, right, you've got a year to get this book written and find out if it's going to sell. And that transition was a little harder than I had expected. You know, Looking back, it's pretty obvious. But at the time, I, I saw no problem with thinking, yeah, on Friday afternoon, I'll, I'll be a telecom communications person. And then on Monday morning, I'll be a writer. It didn't seem like there would be any problem changing gears. But of course, there was. So it took me a little while to, to get into that new that new groove. But I got there. And I did get the book finished. And um, it, I did manage to eventually get an agent and everything. And so I think probably how did that go? Probably the deal was signed in 2006, 2007, probably kind of maybe the beginning of 2008, I guess, the, the deal was signed. And then, you know, I was I was still somewhat used to that telecommunications world. That's right, I got the news that there was going to be, that somebody was interested. It would have been my grandmother's birthday. It was February, that's where I remember it. And I remember when I talked to the, the, the prospective editor on the phone, I said, so when is this going to be published then? And he said, oh, May. So I'm thinking, well, it's February now, May, three months. Wow, that's a long time, you know, because I was, to what it was like in the corporate world where you know if you did it today it was already it was already too late so you know but then of course it turns out no actually it's 2000 may 2009 that it's coming out so you know that made me even more flummoxed but um so then I had the, the the most difficult part for me was um you know the book was written we'd it was edited, it was done, it was put to bed, I was starting to work on the on the second one. But then, as you know, comes the bit where you've got to go to conferences, and you've got to go to uh, conventions, and you've got to meet people. And you know, for me, I was used to a sort of defined um, situation, you know, like if I went to a telecommunications meeting, I'd know what what it was all about. I'd know what people talked about. You had this kind of automatic entry to talk to people, but all of a sudden I have to come to a different country um, with a different culture and just, you know, launch myself in and start, you know, it was very hard kind of going up to people and saying, hi, let me talk about me. You know, that's just not what we do in the UK. So it was, it was difficult to, um, to kind of, I had to almost sort of invent a persona, you know, to, uh, to kind of slip into for, 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 for when I was at things like Boucher or, you know, any of the other big, big events to kind of enable me, they, you know, a bit like going back to the theatre thing. It was almost like, you know, you're, you're playing a role, you know, you're, you're playing the role of author because that's what people expect from you when you're in one of those conferences. So, you know, yeah, th- those were the two hardest parts of the transition, the kind of switching from corporate mode to writing mode. And then when when that was done, switching into figuring out how to do the, the um, you know, the schmoozing parts of, of the conferences and and everything like that. So, you know, it's, um, and that I think you know strangely enough is almost sort of coming back because <clears throat> I haven't done um, an in-person book event since I think November 19 because of the pandemic and so um, I, you know you become used to it and I realised the other day remember when they were talking about whether BoucherCon this year was going to be live and in person or not when it was looking like it was going to be I was thinking wow you know if I go what am I going to do I'm completely out of the habit of um, <clears throat> of of doing panels and, and and events, you know, I was, I was thinking I was going to have to learn it all over again, and I will because even though venturecon didn't go ahead, you know, eventually things are going to start up again.
2: Well, you know, you you found yourself at a crossroads that that we all do um, it, from your story, and I would love to know a little bit more about your decision to pursue an agent versus pursuing a, a path of of self publishing because at that time. Uh, You know, Amazon had just rolled out Kindle Direct Publishing and there were a lot of traditionally published authors who were getting their rights back and and putting those books on onto Amazon through KDP. So um, tell us a little bit about that decision.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think probably the reason but i didn't need immediately consider that route was the fact that you know i'd been trying to to write this book for quite a long time you know while i was when i was in that phase when i was trying to write it at the same time as having a full time job you know that went back you know if i if i quit that job in 2006 probably 2003 2002 something like that was when i was starting to try to write it so when i set out um, you know, by virtue of, of my brother being in the business, I could ask him, well, you know, what is the deal? How does this work? And the way I understood it in my mind was that you kind of have three, at that point, you had kind of three hurdles, you know, your first hurdle was writing the book, obviously, the most important one, because if you don't do that, nothing can, else can happen. Second hurdle was was getting an agent. Third hurdle was, was getting a deal. And that's the way it was when I first started trying to write the book. So I guess that I just, you know, I was in that mindset, and I just, I just stuck with it. Um, And so um, I was fortunate in that I did get an agent relatively quickly. So it never caused me to kind of reconsider or revisit that decision. So it probably was just kind of a lack of thoughtfulness on my part, I just, you know, I I tend to be quite tunnel visioned, you know, I, I had a goal in mind. And I was just doing everything that I felt I had to do to reach that goal. And, um, you know, you're right, there were changes in the industry. I remember quite soon after um, I signed with her, my agent was saying to me that she'd bought a a Kindle and was getting into, you know, it must have been the first generation one. It might even have been been before Kindle. It might have been the Sony one that was out, you know, talking about how great it was for reading submissions and everything like this. And I remember at the time sort of vaguely thinking, oh, maybe that's something I should have thought about. But, you know, I, I think I was just too focused on what I thought the goal was from the time when I started.
2: And, and to be fair, uh, you know, your, your brother might open some doors for you, or, or he may have, but he's not going to sell your manuscript. If you don't have a, a, a good manuscript, if you don't have a good story, it doesn't matter who your brother is.
1: Yeah. And in terms of the, um, the industry, I mean, everybody knows now, but in terms of the industry, I um, we, I tried to keep that completely quiet. You know, we, um, he obviously was using a pen, or well, still is using a pen name. Um, at the time, I decided to use a different pen name because um, I thought that that would be an extra level of separation. You know, we—I we, didn't approach his agent. I, I went to different agents. So, you know, we did try to keep it. I, I wanted—I wanted to be. I mean, end of the day, you know, a lot of people would say, "Well, as long as you're earning earning a paycheck, who cares?" But you know, I really wanted. I've always been very independent. I hate people doing things. I hate it when people do things for me. I always want to do everything myself. And I wanted to be able to say say whether I was a success or not a success, you know, at least it was what I had earned. You know, it wasn't anything that had come to me on someone else's coattails and then one piece of advice he gave me actually was I, when I when I got my agent and we were and she got the first deal for me I was still using this different pen name and my brother said to me well what you need to do early on is just let people know it's a pen name because if you don't you know it can be very embarrassing down the road when they find out they've been calling you this different name so I told them and they said well what are you doing you're crazy your real name is much more marketable than the, the one you made up so at that point I thought well you know uh, the, the the pen name's done its job. It's got me, part of what it did actually, thinking about it, going back to your first question was um, having a pen name was actually quite a helpful thing in those early days because I had to kind of believe in myself that I could make this transition from a, a, a job that I was used to, to one that seemed, you know, almost unreachable. And so having a pen name was actually quite good because I could, again, kind of invent a persona. You know, when I went and sat down at my computer, I could stop being Andrew Grant and I could start being, you know, this other person who was able to to write books and stuff. So, you know, that was quite helpful to me. So again, I thought at that point when she said, oh, you need to ditch that pen name and just use your own name. I thought, well, you know, the pen name's done its job. It kind of helped me with that that kind of, you know, gaining the belief that I could be this different person and and do this different job. And, um, you know, Everything was lined up with the publishers. They thought it was better to use my real name too. So I did at that point switch to using using my real name. Um, although now, of course, I've had to switch back to, to not using my real name again. But um, you know, it's a funny business, isn't it? When you uh, you, you kind of kind of remember what what, uh, what name you you're called, it's quite strange.
2: Yeah, I ran under I I ran under a pen name, and and uh, people never know what to call me. So I, I totally understand that. But uh, you, but you've gone on. I mean, since that, since even was published. I mean, you've you've published what, seven, eight more novels as Andrew Grant. You, you've had a successful publishing career, and uh, so so where where does the conversation begin with with Jack Reacher and and your brother saying I don't think I want to do this anymore?
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about a bolt from the blow. I mean, I was. <laughs> I was horrible. I mean, it was it was the most peculiar conversation. And you know, when you look back, and uh, on a particular day, and you think, you know, that is a day where, you know, my life is going to reach this crossroads, and I've got to decide which which way to go. I suppose it's like the whatever those two color pills are in the matrix, you know, which one do you take? Um, What had happened was the last um, of the Andrew Grant books that I'd written, one of the the Paul McGrath janitor books, um, it it came out um, in the January and um, the launch event for it. So I live in Wyoming now and Lee lives down. He's my next but one neighbor. So in Wyoming, that's three and a half miles away. So. the launch event was down at the tattered cover in denver so um i asked him if he wanted to come so he, he said he would and he said well why don't we drive down together so we we, we went in his car because he wanted to smoke so he drove down and we you know what it's like when you're getting ready to do one of those events you kind of all you can think about is you know i hope i don't say something stupid i hope i don't trip over my feet on the way on you know you're just kind of hoping to, to, to survive unscathed you know so fortunately the the event went really well but by the the time we were driving back this was late at night um, in Colorado crossing the border to Wyoming in January and the weather was abysmal there was this what we call a ground blizzard you know when the snow blows horizontally right across in front of you and you really can't see where you're going so I was concentrating a hundred percent on not crashing the car and I even said to Lee you know this is horrible I think we've got about a 50 50 chance <laughs> of either we get home or we end up in a ditch and um so, so, you know, he's kind of looking at the GPS in the middle to see if we seemed like we were heading and uh, still heading on a road, you know. And so, at some point he just, and later he said that he did this deliberately because he knew that I would be so intently focused on the driving that I wouldn't be able to make some kind of knee-jerk reaction he said "Sir, the thing is I'm thinking about retiring how about no he said he said so here's the thing I'm thinking about retiring so you know obviously as a good brother I should have said something like well that's great you deserve it you've worked hard for all these years you've helped so many people of course you should retire and, and enjoy yourself but instead I said well what about Reacher you know because I was the first Reacher fan in the world. I was the first person to read Killing Floor and it was still written in pencil. And you know, every year since I've, I've looked forward to the next installment. So my first thought was well, what's gonna to happen to Reacher? So he said, well, I thought maybe you might like to start writing him. And um, I was shocked because, you know, he's, he's created this, this worldwide phenomenon, you know, this incredible machine. And I just thought the fact that he would trust it to anybody. I just assumed when he was ready to retire, he always said, you know, he might, I must've heard him say 50 times that when he was, when he'd had enough, he was going to have, he was going to write a book called Die Lonely in which Reacher wound up bleeding out on the floor of a grimy motel bathroom somewhere. So that's what I thought was going to happen. But he's, you know, he, he he, he suggested I did it so I was, I was shocked that he would he would sort of trust anybody with it let alone me but then um I started thinking about it and the next thing that happened was that just the way that he said it I, I started to think well you know could I do it could I do it and then it started to feel like a challenge you know and, and one of the things that's got me in more trouble than anything else over the years is I can never walk away from a challenge so immediately I was I was sort of half hooked because of the challenge part but then the next thing was the realization that if I didn't do it, then that would be the end of Reacher. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be in a world where there's no Jack Reacher. You know, I know what it's like to, to wait for the next book. And I thought, I can't. I don't want there to be no more Reacher books. And I certainly don't want it to be my fault that there are no more Reacher books. So in the end, I said, yeah, let's let's do it. So um, it was it, in the end, it wasn't a difficult decision to make. It was just a big shock when he uh, when he first suggested it.
2: If I understand correctly, uh, you guys d- uh, decided on on a on a transition, the Jack Reacher transition, which almost sounds like a '70s British prog- progressive rock band. But uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got you've got the Sentinel, you've got Better Off Dead coming out um, very soon, and we'll have links in the show notes to those. So, uh, what's what's the transition like? Are you, were you guys co-writing? Were were uh, were you doing the bulk of the writing? What what was
1: that arrangement? Yeah, well, it was um, it was something that sort of um, evolved as we went along because that that evening in the car, I think his his idea really was very much that he would just pass the reins over to me and that would be it. But we obviously had to talk to lots of different people. We talked to our agents, we talked to the publishers, and. Um, one of the things that we felt was a strength was that often when somebody takes over a series, it's because the original author's dead. You know, there are lots of, you know, the Robert Ludlum books, for example, you know, the Steve Larson books, there's lots of examples of people picking up a series or a series character and continuing, but we couldn't really think of anywhere. It It was like a relay race where the baton was handed over because the author was still alive and actually just wanted to do this. So, um, it seemed from that standpoint, you know, we wanted to reassure the readers that it was really going to be business as usual. You know, that the, the name on the jacket didn't really matter. It was still a reach of book. Um, So I can't even remember at this point who suggested it, but somebody said, "Well, maybe the thing to do, if we're if we're really going to um, stress the the continuity and the family connection, maybe the thing to do is to work on the first few together," and we, we decided we would. Um, because just as a slight aside you know one thing that, that my brother wanted to do right from the beginning was he he was he was very clear that this was the series was to be about jack reacher it was the reacher books it wasn't the lee child books it wasn't even the title of the current book he never wanted somebody to go to a bookstore and say have you got whatever you know the visitor or whatever it might be or have you got the new Lee child he always wanted it to be have you got the new reacher and so in fact at one point he was even talking about well why even have an author's name on the cover it's just a reacher book that's all people need to know and so um, he was always very clear about it being about the character you know and I understand the character because you know my my brother and I are very similar people and this is something the characters are sort of set of exaggerated um, attitudes and, and and um, you know, standpoints and beliefs and 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 preferences and so on that, that come from him. And you know, I'm a similar person, so we we really get that. And so um, I thought continuing the character part was was going to be was going to be no problem. Um, so what we did, of course, was started out to figure. out, Well, you know, being in this position where people said, "Okay, so you're going to write these, we're going to co-write these books." <laughs> we're like, "Okay, well." What does that look like because neither of us has ever co-written a book before you know (laughs) neither of us is famed for our ability to play well with others so we thought um well how are we going to do it so we you know the first thing we did was he has a tradition that he always starts each book on september the 1st because you know he got fired from his old job on, on august 31st so september 1st has to be the day so we sat down Uh, September 1st, 2019, to start writing the first book together. And we figured out a way of doing it. You know, we live relatively close together. So, um, you know, he could just come over to my house. It's a walkout basement where my office is. So he doesn't even have to knock on the door or whatever. He can just come around, come in my office. We could hang out, drink coffee, you know, talk about, um, Basically, well, what happens next? You know, that was always the question we were asking each other, what happens next? Because he's famous for not wanting to outline anything. So it was this, this whole succession of, well, what happens next? And um, we were we were doing, making some good progress with that. Um, then we kind of had a little break for Christmas, went and did different things. I went back to the UK, he did different things. And then the pandemic, you know, takes hold. So the problem then was, you know, we'd both been exposed in different places. Not that either of us caught it, fortunately, but we were trying to be be conscientious. So we figured at least for the quarantine period, we needed to work separately. And then what we found, and this is not what we were expecting, what we found was that working in separate places was actually much better because you can imagine it. You sit down with, with someone and you've got an idea. And with inevitably, you kind of preface that idea, you introduce it, you know, you give it all of this supporting material. you say, well, I've come up with this idea for this great scene, which leads on from this other scene because, and then it'll lead into this next one in this way. And it's important, you know, and you, you can't help it. You kind of give it some context. And then when the person reads what you've written, it's not reading it fresh because they've heard all of that stuff that you've said about it. So what we found was that if all you do, you wake up in the morning and there's an email sitting there with with no nothing other than a Word document attached, all you've got are the words on the page, just like the reader has when they buy the book. And that means the words have to stand up on their own and do the job you intend them to do or they're not good enough and you have to replace them, you know. And so it actually led us to a much more robust process. At first, we were thinking, God, this is terrible. We're not going to get to work together so much anymore. But actually, it made the working process far more effective. So we continued doing it once the quarantine and everything was was over. And um, we've done the same thing going into to Better Off Dead. And we're, we're, you know, we're past September 1st. We're we We've started on the book for next year, and we're still using that same method. So everything, um, you know, it, it's not broken. So we're not trying to fix it. Do you outline? um well the books that I wrote on my own I I didn't outline you know tremendously um I know some people who who swear by it and outline you know every part of every scene of every chapter so I was never a totally hardcore outliner but I did I did like a little bit more of an idea about where where we were going and what was going to happen um I think that I wrote three books about a Police detective in Birmingham, Alabama, and with those books, um, I had a thing going where I, there were always three strands to the story, and I and I always wanted to make sure that each chapter, you know, you know, you never had the same strand of the story going into the next chapter. It always had to be the, the, the strands intertwined. So I guess those ones I did plan out a little more than the others because otherwise you know you might use up all the story for one strand too soon and then you wouldn't have it you know you know what I mean so I work I outlined those a little more um some of the other ones I I did just let them flow a little bit more and then yeah that was in terms of the writing process the biggest difficulty for me was adapting to that completely unoutlined unplanned way that he has of working and um Like I was saying before, you know, the thing I said to him the most often during the process was, well, what happens next? Because, you know, we would finish a scene, we'd be happy with it, um, we'd be ready for the next one, and I'd say, all right, well, what happens next? And he'd always say, well, I don't know. (laughs) So um the first couple of times that was pretty unnerving and i did actually kind of sneak off and quiet try to sort of quietly you know just do a little bit of outlining so that you know i, I felt like i had it was kind of it, it feels a bit like a safety net you know you've, you you feel like you know you don't have to worry about falling off because there's, there's something there you can rely on um and i think in a strange way that comes through in the writing because you know all of his books have got this very kind of confident tone to them. You know, the writing is, it kind of exudes confidence. And if you're going across that tightrope with no safety net, you kind of have to be confident. You have to believe that you're going to make it to the other side or else you're doomed. And, um, you know, I want the books to be, particularly when when it's just me, I want them to be indistinguishable, you know. What I said to the um, the publishers in in London when I met them um, before the, you know, before everything was agreed, they said to me, well, you know, what's your goal? What what do you want to achieve with this? So I said that I had this picture in my mind of um, launch day for a new Reacher book, one that I'd written, and somebody rushing to the bookstore to buy it. But perhaps they got held up at work, or there was a problem on the train or something. So by the time they got to the bookstore, there was only one copy left. And it was damaged. You know, it was. Um, The covers had been torn off. The spine was missing. The only thing that was left were the pages with the actual story. So the person's so desperate for the new reacher that they buy it anyway, they race home, they stay up all night reading it, and they get to the end and they say, wow, you know, 28, 29, 30 books in, and it's still just as good as ever. You know, that that's what I wanted. I didn't want them to finish reading it and saying, start thinking, oh, well, Andrew's changed this, or Andrew's changed that. You know, I, I wanted it to be just a, a completely smooth that they would say, yep, yeah, that that's, that's as good as it always was and so um that's that's what i'm shooting for so you know i'm trying to replicate everything about the way that he works so you know including the idea of not not um outlining because of that effect that i think it has on the the, the sort of the confident tone that comes through in the in the prose so you know it's that's what i'm trying to do i hope i hope that that's working but um that's that's the reason that i've been doing it in that way anyway
2: what other aspects of your brother's style or process are you trying to replicate for for example uh, time of day or where you write or whether you're using a computer or longhand or are any of those variables included in this replication process
1: um they actually yeah but to to a kind of a less deliberate extent because um neither of us like getting up early in the morning is, is one thing you know so so you know he always has an he always says that um, you know nothing of value happens before 10 o'clock in the morning so you know things like that so i'm certainly not one for leaping out of bed and, and, and making you know starting before the sun rises so I, I guess i probably do start around the same time of day that he did but that's just you know a preference that i've always had it's not something i've had to adapt in order to um to try to to replicate his process i think probably the other main thing that has has affected me is um like I was saying before, you know, I always wanted my books to stand on their own feet. So I was very conscious of trying to not sound like him. You know, I didn't want my books to sound like knockoff Lee Child books. So I was very careful to try to write with a different style, which was difficult because in a way I was sort of forcing myself into something that wasn't my natural style because I think naturally I would write much more like him. And now of course I have to write just like him. I have to write in a way, you know, we, we had a thing where we said, when we set out to, with the Sentinel that we would never reveal who wrote which parts, you know. So w- the idea is that even even our editors, even the longest term Reacher fans will will not be able to sort of pick it apart and say that somebody wrote this sentence, someone else wrote that one, who wrote this paragraph or this chapter, you know, and so far, um, that's what's happened. No one has with with we we do have people who um who try to figure it out and who, you know, say, Oh, I can tell. I know that Lee wrote this bit and Andrew wrote that bit. But you know, fingers crossed so far nobody has nobody's actually got, you know, nailed it. So, you know, that's something that gives me huge pride is that um I had to do a 180-degree turn in terms of of the style. I had to stop desperately trying to not sound like him and start deliberately sounding just like him. And um you know, again, that took a little bit longer than um than I thought it might with the Sentinel. I had to kind of work through it a little bit to get into that, that proper style. Um, but because it's a lot more, it's actually a lot more complicated than it looks. You know, everybody talks about the short, choppy sentences and, and so on, but then it's not all like that. You know, there's, there are a mixture of them. You have to have sort of, you know, slow periods in order to make the fast ones fast. You know, if you make everything fast, then in a sense, nothing's fast because it's all the same. You know, you have to have the contrast between the slower bits and the faster bits and the thoughtful bits and the action bits. And, you know, that's almost, I feel like it's a sort of instinctive thing. Again, I think if you tried to plan it, I don't think it would work. I think it's something that you just have to feel when you are, thinking, asking yourself that question, what happens next? You know, you, that you've got to figure out whether it's time for a, a, a slower quieter moment or a faster explosive moment. And the and the, 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 sentences, the length of them, the, the, whether the, they re- repeat, you know, the repetition, the rhythm, everything like that, that, that all builds to, um, to that effect. And, you know, I, I, on his behalf, I used to get quite, quite annoyed because, you know, you've the, got the more sort of snooty reviewers saying, Oh, well, you know, it, it's just it's just genre fiction. I mean, sure enough, you you can't put the book down, and and you know somehow you just find yourself staying up all night and reading it to the end, and it's propulsive, and the you know. You know they, they don't see well. That's because of the mechanics of the book. That's because the way you know at, at its most fundamental level, the sentences are constructed in a very deliberate way, which is what grabs you at the beginning and lo- doesn't let you go till you get to the end. So um, I used to I used to feel quite um, you know cross for on his behalf that you know that that wasn't that wasn't m- more easily seen because you know there's that old cliche in writing that um, easy is difficult writing. And, um, I think, I think that that's proved itself to be true.
2: Excellent. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so I, I have one more question for you and we can, we can wrap up today. Uh, I would love for you to, to imagine yourself at the point where you're ready to retire from Reacher and you're looking back, uh, on that span of time. And, uh, what are you most proud of, um, when you get to that point?
1: Yeah, I mean that's 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 a great question. I hadn't honestly thought about it before. You know, I'm I'm still sort of looking forward and hoping that um, you know there'll, there'll be plenty more reaches to come. But um, I think that if if I can get to the point where um, when when it's time to hang up the pen, that people will will, as I was kind of hinting to with that example about the book person going to the bookstore. You know, if I can get to the point where, um, however many we do, you know people will say wow you know that 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 series you know it 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 stayed on the same level right from the first book right through to the end if 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 i can keep up the standards that he um that he set then um i think that's what i will be most proud of and that's certainly what i'm going to try to do
2: zach in your band days did you
4: guys ever play a show with the jack reacher transition <laughs> that made me laugh so hard <laughs> Because when you said that, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, "Man, that sounds like a prog band." And then you you totally said that sounds like a prog band from the seventies. I laughed so hard; That was awesome. But uh, man, that was a on, this is a great interview. I don't, I don't even know where to start. There are so many different things. I feel like that. I feel like Andrew just has a very unique perspective and story because and and is doing some things that no one else. I mean. Obviously, in the past, people have taken over famous series for other people. I mean, we've seen that happen a, a lot, but I can't remember a time where a person's brother was doing that. I mean, that just feels like, I don't know, to me, it feels like there'd be some extra pressure on there. But what I think is kind of cool is that, you know, he because I could totally see people being like, oh, well, he's just his brother. That's why he got the job. But he's established himself. And he even did so, what I really liked is how he tried to avoid the name. And he really established himself before being Lee Childs, you know, without doing the whole Lee Child brother thing and stuff. And uh, I don't know. I just thought that was really, really interesting. And, and I'll be really interested to see how things go for him moving forward.
3: Well, right now, um, did you guys read Sue Grafton at all? she did the the ABC books um, so she passed away before the the final book in that that series came out she wrote the the Y book um, you know you yeah, have the whole alphabet nailed except for that and the, the Z book never never actually happened and she passed away um, she was very adamant about not allowing anybody to continue that series and and if you go on Google there's there's a statement that she put out that's actually pretty funny where she basically told her family that they cannot continue that that series so the family is continuing that series <laughs> <laughs> and they're out there aggressively looking for somebody to, to wrap it up um, but that's typically the scenario you know that that happens with this kind of thing the author passes away and they, they try to you know they scramble to try and find somebody to write in that voice you know like i, I worked in the um the vc andrews universe um after after she passed away um you know and i'm not the only one there's plenty of others you know robert ludlum is a, a, another famous example of that um uh, but yeah this is the first time that i think a live person has ever taken over from another live person and and yeah. you know was able to pick up the phone and say hey what should i do here what could i do you know like it was a very cool handoff Um, so I'm listening to this from a very different aspect like first of all like as soon as he started speaking like you can hear you know Lee's voice you know like they're you can tell that they're brothers there's a the, the cadence is very similar their voice is very similar um, in speaking so that makes me wonder like how much of that actually carries over and the written voice you know they're obviously raised together so a lot of the same experiences and things like that um, so yeah he, he is absolutely the, the perfect choice to take over something like this you know he, he's got the you know the experience behind him writing his own books um, you know and he's got that voice he's gonna be the closest thing to Lee that we can get um, but the cool thing about it though, is he's, he's not trying to stay in, you know, within Lee's shadow here. Like he's, he's trying to take this over. He's trying to, to do his own thing with it. Um, which I think is also very cool because when you're 20 some books into a, any particular series, um, you, you need to, you need to brighten it up a little bit. You need something to keep the, the fire going. Um, and I, I think this is a cool way to, to kind of spark it and, and reignite it again and, 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 keep that, that whole universe happening.
4: Well, yeah. And I, I think one thing you said, you know, you were talking about how he, uh, hand it off to him and he's just been able to kind of, Hey, what do you think about this? But they, but you know, you're leaving out the middle step where they collaborate together too. And I think that was, uh, you know, that, that's been part of the transition for them. And I think, uh, you know, him talking about his collaboration process, I, I, I really appreciate that he said that how he saw the value once they weren't able to be in the same room, how much better that was. Cause I, I think, uh, you know jay and i obviously did a lot of stuff together you know wrote several books together and obviously jd you've collaborated with a, a couple of folks we've heard of um but i think we always found a lot of value in the planning process you know or uh, at the beginning which of course he said that lee's not outlining but um but then i i couldn't imagine though like going every day and trying to you know, really actively work on the story with somebody else in the room. So, I'm I'm glad that he kind of pointed that out and brought that up.
3: Yeah, I mean, and that's probably the biggest hurdle for the two of them because you know I know Andrew used to outline his books before he wrote them, so now all of a sudden he's flying blind. Um, there's a really cool book out there called "Reacher Said Nothing." Um, where a reporter sat in Lee's uh, apartment with him while he actually wrote one of the Lee Child books and it really gives you some insight into the you know Lee's process. Uh, and, and Lee he, he kinda won it. You know, like he, he went in there and he you know he would type a sentence and like see where it went if it didn't go anywhere, he had that delete key and erase the whole thing and go back and, and redo it. But there was no real advanced planning there. Like he maybe had the idea for, you know, the the general premise of the book and that was kind of it. He let the characters feel it all out. Um, so imagine, you know, being that guy who, you know, is very used to having an outline, having that roadmap in front of them, and all of a sudden somebody yanking that map out of his, their hand and, and throwing them into that other scenario. That, that's that got to be nerve-wracking.
2: I, I think, too, you know, whether he's your brother or not, if you're handing off your life's work to someone, you're going to you want it to be good and and like i i could almost i could almost picture you know lee sitting in the room and being like well here's my idea and andrew going well, what happens next and lee's like i don't know man figure it out like that's your job like if you're going to take this over this is what you have to do and um it's not it's not exactly like a, a hazing ritual or anything but they're definitely to me i got the sense that um, you know, there's some, there, there had to have been some testing going on, like on both sides, you know, that Lee thinking like, is, you know, is Andrew going to be up to this challenge? And, and, and maybe Andrew thinking like, yeah, is, is this something I can handle? And I think there's a lot of interesting dynamics there that, that take place, uh, handing one series off to another. And like you said, it's a very unusual situation.
3: Well, imagine this from Lee's standpoint. You know, he's got this established series. You know, it's almost like he's handing the keys to a, a you know vintage Austin Martin off to somebody. You know, for their very first drive. You know, like, imagine if Andrew couldn't pull the weight. And you know they're they're halfway through this book, and and Lee is standing there going, um, this might not have been the right decision. So, yeah. so we're we're very lucky that it, that it all worked out. And I, I love the fact that they're not telling anybody who wrote what, um, because I, I run into that all the time writing with Patterson. Everybody's always trying to pick it apart and figure out who who wrote what sentence. And, um, you know, when I wrote Dracula it was the same kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's better. You know, like no nobody really needs to know that other other than them. Um, so yeah, I, I can't wait to read this one.
4: J- Jay wrote a whole book with ten authors one time, and didn't you guys do a contest to see who could guess what, what who wrote what
3: oh yeah,
2: I vaguely
4: remember doing that yeah, yeah people were yeah, like oh to I kind out. of remember that book. Yeah. you don't even remember the name of it <laughs> no it doesn't matter, but it's just i i that that was uh that's funny. I just thought about that so.
3: Well, when I wrote *Dracula*, I think I mentioned this on the air before, like I, I you know, read everything that Bram wrote um, and then I listened to Dracula, the audio book on a constant repeat during the four months or so that we were writing that book just to get his cadence and his vocabulary and all that kind of stuff in, in my head um, because we used a lot of Bram's original notes in that, that book. So we lifted you know, paragraphs from his notebooks and, and dropped it in there. So I had to make sure my voice matched his voice and I knew a lot of people were going to compare the entire book to you know, his previous stuff. Um, so we were extremely careful with that. Um, and it's, it's a daunting task, especially when you're stepping into somebody else's world like that, um, you know, and, and luckily, you know, Andrew had Lee right there to, to work with him.
2: That must have made some for some really awkward conversations with your wife during
3: those four months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on, honestly, like, that particular era of, of writing wasn't, wasn't too bad, but, um, you know, I won't go off on a tangent here, but when, when the editor at uh, Putnam, when they hired a, um, a, an editor to actually go through the book, uh, they hired somebody who had a doctorate in Frankenstein. Um, and Mary Shelley wrote that 80 years before Dracula was written and they didn't, you know, they didn't use contractions back then. Um, so like this editor went through the entire uh, Dracula you know, prequel that we wrote, removed every contraction, replaced words like between with the word betwixt. Um, yeah, tons of, of stuff um, and I had to go back after the fact and, and point out the errors that they made because I, I knew Bram's vocabulary, I knew what words he used and what he didn't use. Um, so we ended up scrapping almost all of that and, and starting over with a different editor uh, just to keep that, that voice consistent. Wow <laughs> the, Yeah the, fun the stuff The people at Home
4: Depot forgot to put the little rubber things Betwixt your floor <laughs> and your <receptacle. laughs>
3: Exactly It's just it was annoying then and it's annoying today
2: Well I could say uh, It was as much fun to interview Andrew As it was Lee those are two, two Stand up guys and uh, great books And it was, it was an honor to have them both On the podcast so that, that was super cool I
3: oh, just want to throw one other thing out there Did you notice that Andrew mentioned like He doesn't smoke yeah. Like an, anybody who's ever run into Lee, like Lee always has a cigarette in, in, in his hand. So I, I can't imagine what that was like during the writing process, being trapped in a room together with Lee, you know, probably hovering over a window or, you know, standing at the open door or something <laughs> the whole time. And, and Andrew trying not to get smoke smells in his, in his office.
4: I got, I got anxiety when you mentioned that Lee Child had someone sit in his apartment while he wrote a whole book. I'm like, man, uh, imagine someone sitting in your apartment, Jay, while you wrote a whole
3: book. <laughs> it'd <be> pretty boring. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's fasc- not,
4: it just seems like it'd be really boring, you know. So it,
3: it's a fascinating read. I mean, every author I think should should check that one out.
2: Nice, awesome.
3: All right. Well, who uh, do we have up next week, JD? Oh, this one's going to be good. So we've got Pamela Paul. Um, and the name may or may not be familiar to you, uh, depending on you know what, what you read. But she's the editor of the New York Times book review. So she's essentially the person who decides you know, what books are going to get coverage in the New York Times. Um, I, I don't think I've ever you know read or, or seen or listened to an interview with her before. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one.
2: Yeah, it should be good. She's got a new book coming out. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that too. So uh, yeah, it's, that's going to be a it's gonna be a fun talk. All right, well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next
0: episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.